With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, Ricky and I kind of got labeled with sort of making this comedy of discomfort. As some people say, watch it through their fingers, kind of cringe comedy. I think that was just a byproduct of how we made it, in our minds, funny. You know, it just seemed funny to us to not to not let the audience out of the room. You know, someone's just done something really embarrassing or humiliating, and we just thought it seemed funnier to us if you just sat in that moment. <laughs> I remember there was, it was there was a, there was a moment once where we were working and Ricky came back from the bathroom and he said something like, uh, yeah, I wouldn't go in the bathroom for a second. I, that was a heavy lunch. And, and then we just started laughing about, imagine saying that when you're on a date. You know, if you're on a date with someone and you and you come back to your date, you go, I wouldn't use the bathroom for a while, sweetheart. That was quee. And then it just expanded into this whole kind of riff. And then subsequently we put it in extras where my character was on a date with a woman and, and did exactly that. So when you're writing together, you're sort of alive to anything that's that's happening, right? But being alive to everything that's happening, like, again, being able to switch from him saying that to something even more ludicrous, to something even more ludicrous, do you think... That's almost like a muscle that you started to develop during the, you know, writing for stand-up, writing your own stand-up material. Like, uh, just, just that ridiculous muscle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a, but, but, but I think that's true for, like, if you look at almost every scene in Extras uh, where Ricky is, like, suddenly nervous, it's because somebody suddenly becomes more dangerous than he had yes. previously thought. <laughs> yes. Samuel Jackson suddenly becomes, <laughs> right. Lawrence, I forget now. Yeah, yeah. They, they suddenly, something bad sure. has triggered a danger signal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 oh God, we're getting all this stuff. Jay, we got to get this already recorded. Oh, uh, I've been recording for like past minutes, so. Okay, we'll keep going. I got Stephen Merchant, uh, fighting with my family, movies coming out. You directed, you wrote. It's based on a documentary that the the Rock, Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson, showed you. The Rock's in the movie, or I should say, Dwayne Johnson. Does he? He doesn't really go by the Rock as much anymore, right? I think you can call him Rock. I think it's kind of one of his many nicknames. I think you can also call him DJ. Uh, I, you know, I like to call him Mr. Johnson out of respect. <laughs> <laughs> but that, of course, has innuendos. Sure, so. sure, sure. Only for your filthy mind. Um, yes, that's right. It originated with him. He saw a documentary, like you say, about this crazy family of British wrestlers. And uh, coming from a wrestling family himself, he just really responded to this journey they went on and this desire to get their young teenage kids into WWE, you know, that being the big leagues of wrestling. Only the daughter Paige got signed and brother Zach got left behind, caused um, great upset for him and, you know, for the relationship and, like, uh, and and as they say even in in, in the movie um they, they really underline the fact to him in his face this it's the end of the line for you right 
And that's just a horrible thing to hear when this was your lifelong dream. It's really tough to hear. And that was one of the things that seemed really relatable and interesting in the story. We've seen a lot of movies in which people of exceptional sporting ability struggle and then succeed. And, and that we certainly have that in ours. But also there's this, this story of what happens when you get left behind, right? What happens when the dream you had planned for yourself, the goal, the thing that your parents had led you to believe from a young age, you're going to be this WWE superstar. What happens when someone goes, nope? That ain't happening for your brother. And then how do you pick up the pieces? How do you start again? How do you reevaluate? How do you find new meaning? It seemed like a really significant, quite weighty idea in what is on the surface quite a fun, funny, you know, uh, sports movie. Right. So it's hilariously funny because the family itself. Yeah. You got, I, I don't want to describe any scenes, but you got to see the movie to appreciate how funny it is that the, the father and the mother are basically coach in, even right in the beginning are coaching their kids how to fight each other better right and then the father himself they they take wrestling very seriously and don't really understand when other people are not taking it as seriously and so that creates a lot of opportunities I for think humor that's right but i think it's so like in a way it was almost like uh being raised in a cult i think you know and, and the cult for them was was wrestling they the parents had had tough times in the past the father as he says had been in and out of jail several times before the age of 21, as his wife Julia says, mainly for violence. Right, to you. Yeah, like, yeah, you're yeah. Not, you're, you play a but small role. But also in real life, yeah. she says that. And um, and so they talk about wrestling as a, as a, like a religion, a thing which has just really changed their lives and converted them. And, and the thing that I responded to, I'm not a wrestling fan, don't know anything about wrestling, but their passion for this thing, the fact they worship it, the fact that it, it means so much to them, um, it was very seductive to me. I, you know, I, I like people who are passionate about something, even if I myself am not passionate about the the thing. You know, right? Well, obsession is interesting, right? right. So, so most—I don't want to say most people because it, it almost sounds like I'm putting people down. But I think most people are kind of trained to uh, get a good job. Their parents want them to get a good job because their parents care. It's all with good intentions. Their parents care about them. Get this education. Get a good job. Raise a family. You know have a happy life, take vacations and so <laughs> yes. on. But uh, obsession has a dark side to it. Like you say, you can be obsessed with something, which is nice because you, you you passionately love something, but then you can get rejected by the thing you love, like in this in the case yeah. of this movie. And that and what's relatable, you could be you could be obsessed with being a lawyer and just get rejected by every law school or or oh, fail absolutely. to pass the bar or whatever. Anything. It doesn't it doesn't have to be about show business, entertainment, wrestling. Uh yeah, it could be indeed anything. And I I think one of the other things that chimed with me in this story, uh, particularly the brother's rejection is that sort of that feeling of there but for the grace of God go I, right? You know, it's of I had ambitions from a young age to be doing the thing I'm doing. Uh, writing, performing, directing, all these things from a young, young age. That was my focus. It was a passion and obsession, if you like. And I often think what happened, what would have happened if it hadn't panned out the way it has. And m perhaps more worryingly, I sometimes think what happens if someone takes it all away from me? That's kind of like how, um, that just sentence there reminds me of Jay Leno would always bank his 20 million a year salary at NBC. Right. But he would... The, his spending money was he'd then go on weekends to Las Vegas and you know sell out a Do casino, show. yeah, and that's the money he would spend because he and people would ask him why are you doing that? You're making twenty million a year. You're yeah. you're you're set. And he's like, no, you never know, man. You never know when this thing is going to end. Yeah, that's so, it. It's smart. And you know, as someone who was always a fan of movies and of show business and of the history of that thing, you know, how many times have we seen people who were at the top of the tree who fell? to the bottom and sometimes it's through mismanagement of finances and sometimes it's through ego 
uh, or addiction or, um, you know, or or sort of failing to move with the times or failing to diversify. I mean, it all, you can kind of wind up on the scrap heap for all kinds of reasons. Well, I want to, I want to, focus on on you and the movie, but I just want to add all of those things you mentioned happened to me. So I, my very first business I sold in the late nineties is internet business. And then everything you just said, uh, happened to me. And I felt a dead zero after having tens really? of millions and then had to rebuild two or three times after that. Uh, and it's really scary to fall now, just out the of interest, of What, when you're at, when you're at the bottom and you know, you've been at the top and you're at the bottom again, what, what picks you up again and gets you to climb back up the mountain? It depends what time you're on. So the first time you, I thought, damn, I won the lottery. I'm really kind of an idiot, but I won the lottery. That was my one chance. I'm never, ever going to get back up. So it, it takes a long time to change your mindset out of that. Yeah. And finally you realize, oh, if I, uh, if I start just bit by bit being a little more physically healthy, if I work on my creativity every day, if I make one phone call a day, if my relationships are on good solid ground so I don't have to put energy into that, then you realize, you start to see there's actually light at the end of the tunnel and mm -hmm. so you can rebuild. By the third or fourth time this had happened to me, yeah. then it becomes like, okay, now I've just got to kick into this once more. Right. It's disappointing, but I know I can get out of it. Right. And, and, and this is going to parallel the questions I, I ask you about your career, because it's a fascinating career in comedy, and you've been all over the, the comedy world. But uh, I just want to real quickly mention, you know, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, brought you this script, and he got touched by this because he came from this, he had a different way of relating to the show, the, the, the documentary, in, and which is now a, a fictional movie, but he originally saw the documentary. Yeah. He related because he... Did, he came from a wrestling family. His dad, his uncles, his right. everybody was a wrestling family. But at the same time, he seems above and beyond. Like, like you look at him and you say, "This guy is going to succeed at, if not wrestling, at whatever he sets his mind to." Right, right. Well, maybe, but I think, um, you know, he's very open about the fact that you know he had a number of missteps himself. He um, thought he was going to be. I think a football player early on and, and was either injured or cut from the team and and then was reluctantly drawn back into the family business of wrestling. You know, he he like the family in the movie, you know, was wrestling in parking lots for, you know, a couple of hundred bucks or or a um, you know, or a bar or something, playing to a handful of people. And and so it was a tough climb for him. And in fact, when he first got his chance at WWE, he talks about this, and he was instructive when I was making the movie about this, was that he he wasn't taken to by the audience immediately. They didn't immediately see the rockiness of him, the rockness of him. He, he had to find the right thing. The moment occurred for him, partly through hard work and tenacity, partly through seizing the moment when the opportunity came. But also, so I don't think it was ever on a platter for him. I think there are things which he has which you can magic up, like charisma and uh, good looks and just kind of a presence, which is hard to manufacture. But but the nuts and bolts of what he does is really hard work. You know, I don't think... he. I think he'd be the first to say that. Well, uh, and I think one of the interesting things about the movie, and this is relatable to, to many professions, and it's also related to, to comedy and, and other skills, is that... A lot of people just think, oh, wrestling, it's just performance. Even I can do it if they just show me the moves. Right. But it's not like that. You need to put, it's a, it's another set of skills that you need to put your so-called 10,000 hours in. Mm -hmm. There's a real mastery to not only the moves and the physicality and, and 
the health aspects of it, but also uh, having presence, having stage presence, having likability. I, yeah. Like you say that maybe can't be manufactured. And I think that's true to an extent, but like any, any talented tennis player, talent might be 15%, but then there's another 85% of working it. Well, there's a quote that I don't know who it's attributed to, but it's that thing of, you know, success is 85%, it's 85% of success is turning up, right? And I think like a lot of it is about showing up and and by showing up, I think you it, it means showing up and, and doing the work and putting the work in. And I think there's this illusion when you're young, there's this romanticized idea that the kind of the, the true creative geniuses sort of don't need to do the work. It can just kind of spill out of them because they're just innately brilliant, you know? And 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 actually, uh, I, I've never encountered anyone that I admire who can just do it without the work. And I think it's, you know, I, I love Bruce Springsteen. I was reading Bruce Springsteen's autobiography. He talks for the first, you know, 150 pages about the work he put in. By the time his opportunity came, he had grafted, he had played the shitty clubs. He he knew what he was doing. He had the stagecraft. He had the showmanship. Again, he has an, and perhaps an innate talent and a charisma and all the rest of it. But he still built on that with the sheer graft. And, um, and, and I find that very kind of inspiring because it's all, I've always worked you know i've always put the work in that's the one thing if i don't do if i have nothing else i'll show up well it's you know on the pot on this podcast we often bring on peak performers in every area of life and it just reminds me of one of the first podcasts i did was with the rapper coolio you yeah. know uh he wrote lyrics every single day for 17 years before his first hit right so and that people people don't realize like it's that kind of persistence and dedication that, and that, and there are shortcuts, but the shortcuts get you to the 17 years. <laughs> right, right, so, right, right. The, yes, there are shortcuts. Um, but, but once you get there, let's say, you know, I mean, the obvious example now is the sort of reality TV star who seemingly kind of, he just becomes a star overnight. Now, I haven't done a deep dive in those into those people to find out if actually a lot of the ones that have truly succeeded have been working at it for years and that the X Factor or America's Got Talent is just the moment when they got their, their opportunity for the wider audience. I don't know. Maybe there's people that literally showed up the day before having never sung a note and suddenly were incredible performers and singers. It seems unlikely. Um, and certainly my suspicion is even if you got that opportunity and you had a raw talent you better start putting the work in then, right? Because, you, you know, you you don't... I don't care how good a singer you are, you can't play a two-hour show every night in Vegas for the next eight years without discipline and and rehearsal and, you know, and control and work. I just, I just, I just don't buy it. I don't, I just don't think it's possible. Well, I want to, I want to talk back to the even beginnings of your career. And this is, believe it or not, going to segue into wrestling quite seamlessly, I hope. But, uh, <laughs> Just, just to, again, intro, I mean, I love the show Hello. I'm going backwards now. Hello, Ladies was, like, one of my favorite sitcoms ever. I've written, like, lists of my favorite sitcoms and Hello, Ladies and Extras, uh, which you were both in, you know, wrote or co-wrote with Ricky Gervais, uh, directed, created. And then Hello, Ladies was, was you were the star. You wrote and created that. Um of course, The Office, you, you and Ricky were on radio, had very successful radio shows in, in England, done a ton of things. And you started off 
doing stand-up comedy in the late 90s. Mm. And I remember you were saying in some interview, you had this persona of like an uh, an arrogant, successful comedian and you would go on stage basically how lucky they were and so on. And that wasn't quite working. Like it was funny, you had humor, but somehow it was like 50-50 whether the act would work depending well, on some unknowns. I think... Um, I always wanted to do stand-up because a lot of my heroes uh, in comedy and entertainment had done stand-up. And so it seemed like somehow I felt... I was both a fan of it and I kind of... And I felt like it, it was a way of paying your dues somehow. I, I, it wasn't that I felt... Because I, I think in my in the end, I always wanted to head towards sitcom and movies. But I just felt somehow that stand-up was an important step on the way there, that it would be a way of learning your craft. I had great respect for it and I wanted to be part of it. Um, but I didn't quite know what my voice was. And when I first got up there, I think I had enough innate talent that I kind of wasn't incompetent. But I think the very beginning, I was a kind of rip-off of Eddie Izzard, kind of surreal and, you know, but but and you very quickly try, when you try and emulate Eddie Izzard, you realize how hard it is to do that because it's very difficult. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I was kind of drifting and I had enough jokes that I could get through a five or 10 minute spot, but I wasn't really... I wasn't really in the groove. And then I was doing a gig one night and this other comedian who ran the gig came in and he he was very, he was charming in his own way, but he was very, he kind of came in and he'd, he'd featured in the newspaper, in the local newspaper. And he kind of, and he brought the newspaper in and he was kind of, oh guys, I don't know if you've seen this. I'm in the local paper again. And he was, and, he, and, and then he went on stage and started talking about how he was in the local paper. And I just was very amused by this idea of this, stand-up comic who who believed he was a big shot in this tiny little town that he lived in and he was a star in his local comedy club because he ran the comedy club and and uh, and and everyone who came was his friends and family and the, it, when he left that club and went anywhere else in the world you know and he would be encounter he presumably would encounter the fact no one knew who the heck he was and didn't give a damn how would he react and that seemed like a very funny idea to me that so so the persona i started doing was this idea that i would show up at let's say i'm doing a spot at your comedy club i would show up like i'm a big i'm a big shot in bristol you, you know i'm so, and then i would be annoyed that no one had heard of me and then i didn't think that the response i got when i came on was a big enough round of applause so i would go off and come on again expecting a bigger applause and and the joke the fun of it was the fact I kept promising this amazing killer stand-up routine, but I never got to it because I was constantly annoyed by something else. And then I would get a newspaper and I would start reading reviews <laughs> of my previous shows, but it, it was they were written in such a way that you realized they were actually critiques, but I was interpreting them as being very complimentary. And it would just and it the and it would just descend into me kind of berating the audience for not respecting and appreciating me enough. And then at the end I would say, um, okay, right, I I don't want to talk about this. I don't want you talking about this. Don't tell your friends about what happened tonight. If you see me in the bar, don't come up and speak to me. I'm going to leave now. Let's not discuss this anymore. And then I would walk off stage, you know, into the wings, pause, leave the stage kind of empty, and then walk back out, really awkward and embarrassing, and just say, you can't get out that way. This is awkward. And then I'm going to have to walk through you guys. And then I would walk painfully through the crowd. And, and what was great was, when the audience were in tune with it and they knew what the bit was and they got it, they got that it was a character, they just, it was, you couldn't, it just killed because there was nothing I could say that was a, was a misstep because I was, you know, because they were on board, they understood the character, they knew what was going on and it was just a delight. But when they didn't get it 
or they just didn't take it to it, they just didn't think it was a funny idea, then I was fucked because I had no act. And then and this was my, and then they just jerk. thought I was a jerk and an asshole. And so, and sometimes they just thought I was this guy that I was pretending to be. And those were tough nights. Because it wasn't like I could suddenly step out of character and then just do 20 minutes of regular observational comedy. Like I was in a hole now. And um, and I remember I did a gig once where someone actually shouted taxi for the comedian, which which I thought was just a myth. I didn't know anyone ever actually heckled that. Um so, so what's interesting? And so the problem was it just basically. So what what happened was every every night was a gamble, right? Like I just didn't, I could not guarantee it was going to go well, and so the it became very. It was very much an. It was there was too much anxiety because I knew it was a funny act, but only if the audience went for it, and so I just couldn't. It was too stressful to keep doing it. But what what's interesting is so there's there's humor in it. Obviously, it's humorous. You needed. You needed stage skills. You need to be able to perform this. Yeah. Um, so you needed to be able to do some kind of crowd work. You needed to have the psychology for it. But you didn't have, this wasn't authentically you. No. And I've heard, like you say in other interviews, like when you when you and Ricky Gervais were writing The Office, it wasn't like you were, you know, like many movies that take place in like cubicle environments. It's like some guy is finally sick of it and, you know, like office space. They right. they figure out how to like beat the system and quit their jobs and or steal from their jobs or whatever. Yeah. You you guys were just taking real truthful situations and just pointing out the ludicrousness of it, which is kind of that that comedy skill of finding more and more ridiculous things in everyday events. And and again, it feels like you evolved from you took these basic skills of stand-up comedy, but then you found where your honesty was, like the importance of honesty in the comedy. Uh, do you feel like that was the transformation? Well, possibly, although I would say that there was an authenticity to this character in that it was based on an observation and a type of person. And so it had an authenticity there. So it wasn't like I couldn't, like if I had to stay in character and when you were interviewing me as that character, I could... I could stay in that character indefinitely, right? Like, I, I, there's enough uh, truthfulness to his demons or whatever else that that's not a problem. The problem was more... So, so there were a couple of things. One was that it was very hard to contextualize it for the audience. Now, if I put that character in a sitcom, I could kind of... I could explain to you who he was, and I think I'd have other characters talking about him, and I could construct a way in which you as the audience would understand what was making him tick, right? And it would work well, I think, as a, as a sitcom character. On stage, I didn't have that context, so I was kind of dependent on the kindness of strangers to observe what I was doing and go with it. So there was that, but there was also um, a limit to it. Like, so it, it just, it ran for maybe 20 minutes, and it was fun, and then it just became a little exhausting. So it didn't have <clears throat> legs, really. It couldn't go beyond it. And I think that's that's the thing that I realized where I needed the real authentic me is that is that that the the character was fun and it was enjoyable to do, but it couldn't it had a sort of shelf life on stage. And that actually to go back to being you and speaking from the heart authentically about you, that's a never ending well that can take you down any avenues. You can speak sincerely if you want. You can speak, you know, comically about other things. And so that so once I kind of embraced that uh, stand-up started to open up for me and it started to be becoming more enjoyable and less stressful and more consistent. Um, because you, because to, you had the basic skills. Right, I had the skills from doing that, but what was interesting is that I sort of parked that character, went off, did The Office with Ricky, did extras, 
abandoned stand-up, didn't do it in any of that time, came back to stand-up with the skill set that I had from the first time round and the sort of minor celebrity of being this sort of award-winning writer. But but I just hadn't done stand-up for so long. And so suddenly I'm, back, I'm going back out there doing it, trying to kind of be me and not quite knowing what to do. Just suddenly like learning, learning the craft all over again, like a... I felt like uh, I was starting from scratch. You know? But but you were you were, but in the spotlight. Your 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 honest voice was you were kind of self-deprecating. You were talking about problems with women. This became right. this ultimately became the Hello Hello Ladies tour and then the Hello Ladies sitcom that you right. created, which oddly actually has aspects of that arrogant character. It's yes. in the in yes. the sitcom, the main character played by you, written by you, has a, a slightly above average arrogance about his ability yes. to pick up women when right. the, the audience can clearly see this is not going to work out with him until right. he finds his own authenticity with women. Right. right. But but still there's that it's like you're kind of um uh kind of accelerating or, or hyper using your own problems with women to create that character which is what you did in stand up. Well, I think it was the when I went back, I started trying to speak more honestly about stuff. Again, with obviously a, a heightened comic uh, energy, but but speaking authentically from experience. And the the stories which always got the funniest response and, and that I enjoyed sharing the most, that, that were sort of exorcisms, were the stories of ill-fated dates. And sometimes I would dip back into my history. So I might tell a story that was from when I was 18 that, that suddenly I'm suggesting happened to me right then at that moment. But... But essentially, they were all born of of real experience, and and so it wasn't that I was trying to write a show about dating. It was just that they were always seemed like the that was the well I kept going back to because they just were the things which seemed most um, most funny to me, most uh, the things I felt like I needed to kind of get out there as like I say, some kind of exorcism. And also, I think one thing I do like in comedy is when there's jeopardy. And I like the idea, not necessarily that the audience is uncomfortable, but that when I'm telling you a story, you understand what the stakes are for me, right? And I think with with a dating story, everyone understands that you want a date to go well. You know, it's a weird person that would go out sort of hoping a date implodes. And so to me, the idea that when you go out on a date, everyone relates to the idea you want to make a good impression you don't want to embarrass yourself. You're, you're, you want a second date, hopefully. You're, you're using energy, hiding your real self in many cases. Of course, <laughs> well, because I don't. This idea that people give advice to teenagers: be, be, you know, uh, just be you. You're going on a date, just be. You. Don't just be you. What are you talking about? Just be you, because everyone's a fucking weirdo, and you have to hide your weird shit for as long as possible, ideally forever. Huh. But if they're gonna, if it's gonna come out eventually, bleed it out slowly. Once you've won the person over with your charm and good manners, you don't just be yourself. And so, um, and so, I think everyone is very. It's a. It's bullshit. The idea that no one's putting on something of an act when you go on a date. I mean, you choose the shirt you put on. If you're a woman, you choose the makeup you wear. You. I mean, maybe one or two people go out, no makeup, you know, no shirt. <laughs> Good luck to them. But uh, it's a it's a ballsy person that does that. So, um, I just thought there was something very funny about this 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 explaining the attempts, the artifice. The, the 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 internal monologue when you're in a dating scenario that that I think I hope other people related to. So 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 it's like like let's take the office extras and even and even hello ladies. There's this aspect of there's an underdog who doesn't quite realize he's an underdog right. in, in each one of these things. So you know David Brent or you know the Michael Scott in the office. 
he, he's an underdog in his, in their, in personal skills, <laughs> right. but also he's like the boss. So he, he thinks feels, he's alpha, but he's not. Right. Yeah. And so 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 he doesn't quite realize it. In extras, uh, I'm not forgetting the name of the Ricky Gervais character, but uh, Andy uh, Millman is yeah. his character. So a Andy thinks he should be uh, this great actor. But some, but he's like an underdog. He's the, just an extra, and he's always trying to right. make it, and he's not aware when he's messing up all the time. And in Hello, Ladies, you know, you're it's it's an extended version of the act you're doing where you're self-deprecating about yes women. So I think that's kind of very appealing and relatable, like this this underdog because we can all relate to that, and even the not quite understanding where we are on that spectrum of beta to alpha, right. Well, I think it's because <clears throat> something that's occurred to me, and you know, as I've gone on in my career and I've had success, and I've been lucky to meet, as you have, very successful people, um, very talented people. You, that insecurity, uh, that that gap, sometimes between the way we want the world to perceive us and how we are, it, it never goes away. I don't. I think you you perhaps learn mechanisms for dealing with it more and you're better at navigating the world as you get older and you're more experienced and success i think gives you a an insulation but i don't think it's not like you know when i won uh, the first of two golden globes pause <laughs> while everyone applauds um it's not like someone hands you a golden globe and then and then and then all the things all the issues you ever had in your life just evaporate you know because you've somehow been given this this what on the surface seems a kind of pinnacle of success, it, it's still there. It's just now you have an award on your shelf. You've got to fucking clean. So, um, and so I think that's the that's sort of my greatest insight in a way uh, is is oh everyone's just figuring it out. Everyone's guessing. Everyone's um, uh, you know, everyone's just trying to you know present themselves in a certain way. Some people are more relaxed in their own skin than others but but certainly success or money or good looks or or whatever it else it, none of these things solve everything else and and that was actually a great comfort to me in realizing that like a great weight lifted from my shoulders of oh yeah everyone's guessing everyone's you know just trying to stumble along figuring it out even The Rock, we're all just guessing, you know? Um, I feel like The Rock is not. Probably not The Rock. <laughs> the Rock is, but I think The Rock probably did come from Krypton in real life. You have been an underdog throughout different parts of your career or in your relationships, whatever, and you talk about this in stand-up. What, what, is there anything to this idea that you obviously realize it now that there's this gap, right, between the underdog and the insight that we're all kind of underdogs in some something or other. Uh, is there anything to this theory that comedy is subtraction? So in the sense that the hero realizes he's an underdog and tries to imp improve and, and decrease that gap. The comedian is the hero without that knowledge and without that insight. So now you're... Uh, working at an office and you don't realize, oh, you know, maybe there's more out there or maybe I'm not the best boss I thought I could be. There's there, there's this gap between who you really are and who you think you are. And so subtracting, if 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 Michael Scott always realized that he need to be a better boss, the, that removed, right. there would be no comedy. It's the fact that there's a subtraction, there's this gap 
that you pointed out, right? Uh, that that creates the comedy to some extent. Well, that's that's I think in 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 a lot of my favorite comedy characters is that comic flaw, the flaw in in Michael Scott's case being like you say that his version of himself and the version the world actually sees are two different things, and he's not aware of that. And the moment that he becomes aware of that, in a sense, the comedy's over because he's figured it, figured it out. And in our version with David Brent, you know, we gave him a certain growth and enlightenment by the end of the series, which was one of the reasons why we felt we could end it because that gap was no longer there. It's perhaps slightly different in stand-up because it, you can present a sort of version of that in stand-up. Uh, but of course, again, if you're trying to be truthful, the real most good stand-ups are very self-analytical on the whole and, and can see... I was going to say they can see their own flaws, and that's not necessarily true. But um, I'm trying to give, I'm trying to think of what my what's my point there. I guess for me, I feel very um, self-reflexive, so I hope that I can see the disparity between who I am and the, the version I'd like to present. I'm a, I'm mindful of it. I'm aware of it. It's not a flaw. I'm conscious it's there, uh, and so. But like in the, in the Hello Ladies tour, for instance, you you know, one you mentioned like sometimes you would. Uh, mention an anecdote that happened when you're 18 years old as if it happened yesterday, in part because if it happened yesterday, you have all the, the Golden Globes and all these other right. things. So that's a, you're going to have a different set of problems that might not be right. as relatable. So you bring up the 18-year-old situation. Uh, right, right. Um, and then I, I do think in the stand-up that I've seen you do that you're, you're, you point out or you, you act astonished when something seems truly ridiculous, but you're still, you still have hopes and dreams that might not be occurring in real life like when you make eye contact with the girl in trafalgar square right and right right she right, just wants right. to use you as a as a meeting point yes yeah yeah yes yes so so, the, so so you're able to still point out okay that was ridiculous that that's happened to you but you start off as this underdog not realizing that there was no chance at all from the beginning right 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 yes yes i guess it's like you're 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 relaying this story on which you have perspective now but when you are when you're acting out the story, you're you're playing out the version of you that that was blind to the to the outcome. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. So in that version, you know, I I'm telling the story of being in Trafalgar Square at New Year's and everyone's, you know, it's crazy. It's like Times Square at New Year's, full of people, and I see this girl looking at me, and I'm thinking, here we go. All right, Steve, uh, get ready. She's probably uh, seen you on the telly. Here we go. Good luck. Uh, play it cool. She comes up. She says, "Are you going to be here for a while?" I said, "Yes, I am." She said, "Great, because me and my friends have arranged to meet back at you." <laughs> now, but but in telling that, I know what the joke is clearly, and I'm telling you that I'm sharing it because it's embarrassing. But I'm then playing it out as though I am that person again who doesn't know where this is going. Right. So I, I, there's something really fun to me about being aware of your own failings and then sort of and then playing them out. Yeah, because you play yourself again. You you're, you're playing them out without appearing to have knowledge of what's going to happen <laughs> exactly, at the end. Exactly. So it's the subtraction of the knowledge. Right. The audience is along on the ride with you now. Right. And right. and and then they can they can't necessarily relate because they're not six foot seven, so they can't be a meeting point. Yes. But they relate to the the horror of it once you realize <laughs> exactly. what's what's happening. Right. Uh and then uh, another interesting point is you had this character in the late nineties that was not really you, but it was about something you thought was funny. But you made that that kind of um, arrogant comedian character. You you took that persona. Mm. But then look at a show like Life Is Short, which you did. You know, you and Ricky did it uh, with Warwick 
Davis, who's a, a little person yes. who's playing this agent and actor and so on, he's almost that character. Right. That arrogant character. Like he, yes. he, and that's not how he is in real life, but he's like that character that you described that you, so instead of you playing that arrogant persona, you're able to point out the arrogant persona and that becomes funny. Well, that, and that might have been a misstep. I, I, I think what we thought was Warwick had come to us with a, with a little um, uh, film he'd made himself in which he played a character not unlike that. Um, and, we thought it was hilarious and we expanded it into a show and we amplified that sort of douchiness because we just thought it was funny. And, you know, I think we also, in discussion with Warwick, we sort of wondered if, you know, if if, if it would allow people to laugh at Warwick more because there's a, there was, you know, talking with Warwick, you know, he I think he was worried, you know, are people going to feel relaxed enough to laugh because I'm a little person, do they... Do, do they understand that they can kind of laugh at me, you know, or do, is there kind of, you know, are they anxious about, oh, I shouldn't really be laughing at him? And and so I think we felt like if we make him kind of a dick, it gives you more license to laugh. But actually, I think what happened was for a lot of the audience, I think perhaps it goes to their own prejudice, is that a lot of audience members assumed Ricky and I were sort of mocking Warwick in some way or would kind of imposed this on him and that Warwick was just a prop for us. Um, which couldn't be further from the truth. You know, it was originated with Warwick, and Warwick was the was the sort of um, the star of it, and and he's just the most talented man. And and so it was interesting that people ended up becoming uncomfortable anyway, because we'd sort of made him into a dick. And that perhaps if he was more likable, they'd have been rooting for him more. I don't know. It, it, it's interesting. But, but it, it, what worked was when you had, and this worked in extras too, when you have these celebrity actors. There's a scene in every single episode of extras like this where some celebrity actor comes in who's even more douchey than <laughs> right, everyone. The last one, yeah. And they're playing kind of maybe exaggerated, ver heavily exaggerated versions of their personas that, that we all know and love. And then watching your reactions off of their douchiness is where the comedy is. Right, right, yes. Well, I think that's just, I don't know, it's just, it's just there's a lot of fun in playing with the image that someone has, right? So um, you... Uh, you know, you 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 have a projection of someone as being a certain thing, and then we either contradict that or lean into that for comic effect. You know, and so um, you know, Ben Stiller is is in it. You know, as this kind of dictatorial film director. You know, trying to make the point that he should have more respect because dodgeball made three hundred million dollars. You know, and oh, yeah, that was it's, it's an absurd. Episode. You know, it just something about using dodgeball, even the word dodgeball to kind of make sort of a really angry point, you know? Right, like getting in right in, in Andy Millman's face, like, did you make, you know, X, Y, Z? Did you make me the parents? Did you make me the fuckers? Or whatever it might be. Yeah, it's sort of... Because Ben isn't like that, and so it would be, abs it would be absurd for him to speak in that way with such sort of sincerity about something seemingly so trivial. But we're looking at it through... You know Andy Millman's eyes, the character played by Ricky Gervais. Right. So he's just looking at it like, what is? I mean, he's the he's the audience, right? Just kind of, what the hell is this guy talking about? And then what's always funny in in extras, and then also Life Is Short, and maybe other things, is that when he kind of gets to that moment where he's speechless, like he doesn't, he's either stepped, you know, he's either said the wrong thing, and now he's really embarrassed, or he's in a un very uncomfortable situation. The camera. Hones in, tends to hone in closer on him. Mm. Uh, is that part of, like, so this is where I wonder how much the directing is part of the comedy. Well, 
you know, it's Ricky and I kind of got labeled with sort of making this comedy of discomfort, which I wouldn't say is inaccurate, but it wasn't, it, that wasn't the plan. It wasn't like that was sort of the agenda was to make people uncomfortable or to, as some people say, watch it through their fingers, kind of cringe comedy was another way of saying it. I think that was just a byproduct of what, of how we made it in our minds funny. You know, it just, it just seemed funny to us to not, to not let the audience out of the room. You know, someone's just done something really embarrassing or humiliating and, 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 and you let the audience off by kind of cutting away to something else. But we just thought it seemed funnier to us if you just sat in that moment because if you have embarrassed yourself, you know, it's like I was saying earlier about the stand-up, like me storming off. I'm going to walk off stage now. Me storming out of that stage into the wings, leaving the stage empty, just a microphone there, the crowd's not quite sure what's happening. And then I have to agonizingly walk back on and then explain that you can't get out that way. To me, it's just so funny because I've just, I've been such a dick. It's like a punishment for my behavior that just seems to, I, for me, it just magnified the funny and for Ricky the same. And so I think to us, it was uncomfortable. It wasn't, but it wasn't, it was just really funny. And, and yet I think for some people it was like, I sometimes think if you, it's like if you're making a horror movie and because you know the blood is fake and because you know the the horror masks are phony and that the person's not really a psychopath and the girl's not really got her head cut off, you think, more blood, more gore, hey, you know, because you're there on set and you can see it's all fake. But when you put it on screen and people are into it, they're like, oh, this is horrible. And I sometimes feel the same way with the, with the, some of the comedy we did, right, was that we just thought, let's let, make it even longer before we, you know. But, but, but actually people were like, this is too much. <laughs> I can't cope. When you were doing stand-up, which is, let's say, where, where you get the comedy chops to then, you know, write the scripts and so on, like, particularly in the later you know, the, like, let's say the whole ladies tour, when did you find yourself kind of increasing the tension and the embarrassment and the pause to, to increase that discomfort in the audience? Did you ever find yourself doing that I, there? I think I backed away from it in the standup because mm -hmm. I think, um, it, 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 it was too agonizing in a way. So it requires and a certain bravery. It does. That, it does. And I think, I think probably I lost a little bit of my nerve because I went back to stand up. um, already with a reputation mm. now as this award winner and so on. Sorry to keep bringing that up. <laughs> but um, That's funny. How would you yeah. turn that into a bit? <laughs> or you're sort of turning into well, a bit Well, that kind here, of but... is the bit, isn't it? You yeah. Know? Um, so, um, so, uh, yeah, so, so, so anyway, so I saw, yes, because I was kind of learning the craft again, but sort of in the spotlight, I uh, couldn't hide, I couldn't kind of just learn my craft quietly in comedy clubs because every time I went out, there was people perhaps who knew I was. I probably just shied away from some of the more audacious stuff that I'd done the first time round because I was a bit kind of, I just wasn't convinced I could pull it off. You know. So when you when you start off in stand up, and then you, you you know you met Ricky Gervais, you started working for him as an intern on his radio show. Then you guys start writing scripts. You write the script for 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 The Office among others. And what what you know did you write every day? Like what 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 made what. How what was your writing process like? Like how would you do comedy writing? And I'm not asking for like the magic formula. I'm just yeah. asking what your process was. Like how would you determine? Okay, we're going to aim towards this funny beat and then move on. Well, you know, we talked earlier about hard work, and and Ricky, you know, has often said that until the office, he never worked hard. I mean, that was the hardest he'd ever tried at anything. And you know, again, Ricky does have 
like those people who go on X Factor and maybe have never sung before, he did he did have just this innate, untapped brilliance that 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 had never really been seen before. But but nevertheless, it needed to be sort of corralled and shaped in into scripts, and so there was a lot of hard work and discipline that 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 went into it. And you know, a lot of what we did was we just talked endlessly about, uh, in the case of the office, offices we'd worked in, people we'd worked with, stories we shared, stories we'd heard about office life and just kind of kept discussing them and and made a sort of, you know, we'd make notes of kind of the funniest stuff. And then after a while, there were certain things that kept coming back to us that we would make a note of on the on the wall, you know, on post-it notes. And, um, and then it just became... Some of it was improvisation together. We would kind of riff on the scenes and then we'd put it into a dictaphone, transcribe it later. Uh, sometimes it would just, you know, it would an idea would occur and you'd be walking down the street and something would suddenly, we, you know, because we spent every day with each other. So we'd be, we'd, we'd be in a, we'd be in a, <laughs> I remember there was, it was there was a, there was a moment once where we were working, we were working on extras and, Ricky came back from the bathroom and he said something like, uh, yeah, I wouldn't go in the bathroom for a second. I, that was a heavy lunch. And, and then we just started laughing about, imagine saying that when you're on a date. You know, if you're on a date with someone and you, and you come back to your date, you go, I wouldn't use the bathroom for a while, sweetheart. That was... And, uh, and then it just expanded into this whole kind of riff. And then subsequently we put it in extras where my character was on a date with a woman and... And did exactly that. So that just bore, you know, that just was one of those things where you're kind of, when you're writing together, you're sort of alive to anything that's that's happening, right? You, you, you. But being alive to everything that's happening, like again, being able to switch from him saying that to something even more ludicrous to something even more ludicrous. Do you think that's almost like a muscle that you started to develop during the, you know, writing for stand up, writing your own stand up material, like uh, just just that ridiculous muscle. <laughs> <laughs> like this is ridiculous. Yes. Well, certainly, I think um, I certainly think stand up more than anything exercises that muscle. And I think, like at the moment, I, I'd like to go back and do more stand up, but I feel I don't feel match fit. You know, I do feel like a boxer who's out of shape, who 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 needs to get training again to get that muscle working again. Um, and so, yes, I. But I. But I, but but when I was working on those stuff, I, I'd by the time we did extras, we'd sort of I'd stop doing stand up. So. I think in that point we were just he and I were just working together so consistently that the muscle was being exercised in other ways. Mm. We were doing radio every week or podcasts. We were in the writing room every day. We were just constantly in that frame of mind. And and if we'd be doing interviews, we'd be doing it. So we were just, you know, we were just uh, I wouldn't say machines, but we were just doing it all the time. It was just everything we were was doing was thinking about that. Stuff. So so you say you'd have to get into into shape again for stand up. And and believe me, this is. I'm going to segue this into wrestling, believe it or not. Uh, what's the difference between the the comedy writing and the stand-up is probably the stage presence, the physicality of it. What what else am I... Uh, I think there's the, a... The likability at the moment. No, I think I think the greatest asset for me with stand-up, which feeds back into screenwriting or, or sitcom writing, is uh, remembering how to make an audience laugh. Li in literally the fundamentals of set-up, punchline making the audience understand the premise of your conceit or your joke or your idea, you know, conveying that, remembering the economy of that. So refining how how little do you need to say in order for the punchline to still make sense. Um, and just, and just, 
remembering that you can work in the abstract. You can you can think you've written the cleverest stuff in the world, but it's not till an audience hears it that you realize if it works or not. And and with stand up, you're sort of in there in you're in the trenches, right? And you every time you try a bit, you know, X number of people are going to tell you if it works or not. And it's pretty it's a pretty cut and dry thing. Um, would you go back home then and like rewrite and take out words and in terms of stand up? Yeah. Uh, well, like stand up on, your, I think, on your later tour. I think it would just be that you just yes, you just ref, you just refine it. You just you you keep chipping away at the, the extraneous stuff until it's lean meat, you know. Um, but that took a long time for me, and and it and it, I don't do that quickly. I think there are some people that just are much much quicker at that that can just shave off the dead wood much much quicker. I, I, it takes me a lot longer to figure that stuff out. Um, but you know, then you know when um, when Jimmy Fallon first started with the Tonight Show, and you. And him and famously Joseph Gordon-Levitt did those first lip sync mm. battles. There was this side of you, I think, that nobody had ever seen. Like that was crazy—the first lip sync battle. <laughs> right, right, and right. You're, you know, kind of what was interesting um, was the difference between the persona we know as Stephen Merchant and the one that we've seen on, like, you know, extras and Hello Ladies, and and then. Uh, uh, I forgot that song. What was the first song you played? Did against? I did Joseph a Will Mer Smith song, and then I did a "Single Ladies" by Beyonce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just insane what you were doing—the right. physicality on on stage. And what I appreciate in that is, it's obviously not quite stand up, even though the Tonight Show is kind of a, a, a well-known sixty-year-old format for for stand up. It's not quite stand up. It's not quite karaoke or singing or music. Right. You're, you're you're creating an experience out of the space that you have. And I wonder if in this world where I can watch stand up on YouTube, why do I have to go out to a club or, or, you know, I, I wonder how much stand up is changing now to be more of an experience rather than just a set of set up punchlines. Like you doing those lip sync battles was funny. Yes. Well, I, I think in a way that's almost the purest kind of fun in terms of when you're doing comedy because you're not overthinking it. You're simply going with instinct. All I have to do is go out and lip sync to these words. Everything else, no, that's all I have to do. But you had to choreograph that too. The choreographing was funny. Right, but I think it's, it's but it's partly, because it wasn't a lot of choreography. A lot of it is just, so for instance, to me, like we go back to that idea, the joke there is, here is a song by Beyonce that is, is performed traditionally by a very supremely talented, well-rehearsed, beautiful woman who's just at the peak of her powers. And I couldn't be further from that person. But I'm going to perform it with the same level of commitment that she would to the point where I think, or it appears that I think I'm as talented and as great as she is, right? I'm going to, I think I'm as sexy. I think I'm as loved by the crowd. I'm going to give it a thousand percent. And... And so that just seems it's, it's, funny to me because I'm clearly a gangly, middle-aged, you know, British guy but still, who's six foot seven. So the, the idea of having that level of commitment to something that like that, it just seems funny, right? Again, it's just, it's, un, it's undermining my perceived notions of my own dignity or whatever. So it seemed, but, but, but beyond that, that's me kind of intellectualizing it in the, in the, in the, in the retrospectively. At the time, it just seemed, 
just innately that just seemed like it would be funny. <laughs> but but also it's commitment's important, like the commitment to going back on the stage in your early stand-up right. to and being embarrassed and so on. There's a certain commitment to that. Even if you're bombing, even if you're they're failing to get the joke, you have to commit well, all the way to the, the other, end. That's the other great lesson with stand-up, isn't it? Is that there, there are a lot of the ways you succeed are counterintuitive. If you're nervous and something's not working, slow down. Don't speed up. Don't try and get to your next punchline faster. Slow down, take a sip of water, walk the stage, look the crowd in the eye because th that's regaining the power of the moment. It's it's putting you back in charge. If you get nervous, you panic, you start speaking quickly, trying to get to the next joke, everything's gone, you know? And, and so similarly, you know, the really great comedians are the ones, and again, I don't know if I've got this nerve, but some are the ones that just will double down on a bit. It's not working. Fuck you, I'm keeping going. You know, and they will just plow on until through kind of a war of attrition, they get the audience back again. You like know, that's, never, that's really audacious and impressive. And again, that's through um, doing it every night. You're being match fit. You can take those punches because you know you're going to land a killer knockout punch if you just keep going long enough. Did, did you ever hear the Bill Burr in Philadelphia where he the audience, he's just bombing and finally he just starts screaming curses for like 20 minutes at the audience until eventually they're all like cracking up. Right. Hilarious. Well, like, Bill Burr is someone I was thinking of where I've seen him do stuff where you can see he's just, I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to keep going because I know there's something here and... And it's great. It's brilliant. It's electrifying when it goes well. So, so, so now with wrestling, you know, <laughs> yes. believe it or not, yeah, it's the same thing because I feel like you make the point in in the movie, or the character makes the point in the movie. It's not, it's not fake. It's fixed, right? And that's like comedy. You're telling a story. You know what the story is going to be in the outcome. It's fixed, right. the comedy, but it's not fake. You're telling right. a true story, right? Right? And, right, and, right, and, right. Uh, and it's also experiential. It's it's your there's an audience in front of you. There's a stage that you're on. You're moving around the stage. You're interacting with the audience the same way the wrestlers are on the stage. And I'm wondering if you, from your stand-up experience, related to that in the wrestling experience. Well, I don't think I related to it until I started making the movie. And actually, <clears throat> you know, I was not interested in wrestling. I was intrigued by this story, but I had to learn about wrestling in order to make the film authentic. And the more I researched it, the more I spent time with people like Dwayne and Paige, who it's based on, the more similarities I could see with stand-up, with my experience of stand-up. And one of the other things which Dwayne really dialed me into is, you know, he talked about the fact that what's important for wrestlers is going over with the crowd, i.e. winning the crowd over. And you can be a bad guy or a good guy within the ring, but they need to be responding to you. They need to engage with you uh, as a wrestler, as a performer, whatever you want to call it. And that's that's what success is in the end. It's not about the matches because people know the matches are fixed or fake or whatever you want to call it. Um, so what is it that they're dialing into? And they're dialing into you as a character, as a person, as a persona. And the and the and the most successful wrestlers, as Dwayne was explaining it, take a part of themselves and they dial that up to a hundred. And so even though they can be playing a very magnified character in the ring, there's something truthful there. There's something that they're drawing on and there's something that the audience can tune into even at a subconscious level and the story that we're telling about Paige was someone who who was this who felt like an an outsider and an oddball she'd gone, come from England she went 4,000 miles away to Florida she was this all the girls there were you know the kind of glamour puss kind of blonde hair blue-eyed all-american girls she's this sort of pale goth girl from England um and the more she leaned in, leaned into that 
version of herself, the more she declared herself the weirdo and the outsider, the anti-diva, as she called herself, the more the crowd responded, you know? And I thought, like you said, it's kind of similar with stand-up. You know, the more truthful you are, even in this artificial situation in which, I mean, because the most absurd thing about stand-up is the idea that I'm sp you're supposed to think I've just walked out onto the stage and I'm just saying these things as they occur to me. I mean, I know some people believe that they watch a stand-up comedian and that person's never said that, said that stuff before. But most of us who work in the comedy business know there are very few comedians who ad-lib their entire act, right? They may do some crowd work and they may riff on a few things here and there, but most of them are have said those words before. And yet there's a sort of, there's a conceit in the room that, yeah, I'm just coming out here to do some chatting, some talking, hey, blah, blah, what is it about supermarkets, you know? Um, and so there is a sort of artificiality, even as you're trying to be authentic. Right, and it's almost, I, it's almost like a one-to-one -one relationship. Like, let's say in both cases, wrestlers and stand-up, at the end of the day, you're trying to entertain an audience. You're performing for an audience. It's not about who's winning a wrestling match, and right. it's not about who's telling the most interesting story. It's a, it's you're you're taking storytelling, and using it to use these punchlines in the middle of the story to make the audience entertained. That's it. And wrestling, it's not about okay who's gonna really beat the other guy up and pin them down and so on. It's it's this whole experience, this this choreographed beautiful experience of you know a, a, two personas fighting each other and doing these extravagant over-the-top moves that are impossible right. for the goal of not winning, but to entertain the audience. Right. Well, because one of them knows they're not going to be the winner, but they have to make the winner look good. And they know that's the dance. And like you say, uh, that's what they're there to do. They're there to entertain the crowd. And and the and they they win, in a sense, when the crowd is entertained. And where does... And, you know, authenticity is interesting because uh, Dwayne Johnson gives this advice to, to Zach and Paige, or Brittany, closer to the beginning, which is don't be the new me be the new you. Right. And uh, where, where does authenticity, so authenticity, you can clearly see how, where it plays in stand-up. Where do you, where did you kind of realize it was playing it out in wrestling as you were making this movie? In wrestling? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think just, just because, um, you know, d doing a lot of uh, sort of research and, and watching a lot of videos and, uh, the the thing that really turned it for me was uh, Paige, on whom the story is based, without giving away the ending of the movie, in real life gets to win a significant championship in her career. And we know that the ending is fixed. We understand that. And yet she told me that when she experienced that moment in real life, the sense of adrenaline, the joy, the emotion of it, the victory of it was as real for her in that moment as if she had won um, a gold medal. And, and and that just really struck me as odd in, in this artificial world. And it's because, you know, she's she went away from home at 18. She worked tirelessly. She trained both to, to be great on the mic, to, uh, to as a performer, and also physically training um, to be a great athlete. Um, and she went through lonely moments. She went through, you know, moments of sadness and, you know, depression and all kinds of things. And so at the moment at which she she gets that moment where she someone hands her the belt, it's kind of like winning that Golden Globe, right? It's like, 
yeah, we're going to reward you for all that effort you did. And, and, and to her, the fact the crowd was cheering and they were responding to her and they were on her side and they were celebrating that victory for her, even though they all knew, even if they're not saying it out loud, that it's artificial, meant everything to her. And so there's a truth and there's an underlying real reality in this even, in this crazy artificial world. But And, and again, that in, in stand-up, someone might tell a story that the audience thinks or knows is completely fake. Right. And yet they'll still laugh at the end because right, right, it was right. a real story because we want to, we, the audience, want to be entertained. That's why you go to wrestling, why we go to stand-up. Yeah. Um, well, I think also, I think uh, perhaps even more in stand-up, I think there's also, there's a sort of shared experience. I mean, there's something, you know, there's, there's a reason why the kind of have-you-ever-noticed style of comedy is so popular because it connects us, you know? You, someone makes a really well-observed comment about something that everyone has experienced but never commented on before and there's a there's a connection there we all we don't feel like these lonely people wandering around on this planet we feel weirdly connected to that person and yeah. something as silly as saying you know some silly comment about whatever it might be you know airplane travel yeah and you you've mentioned something in one of your interviews where the more you got to closer to truths that you would always think about you but didn't realize everyone else or, or what, what happened was you would say these things, people would laugh, and you realize, oh, everyone else is also thinking about these things. And I right. think that's what happens is that we all, you know, every part of the earth is different. But if you drill down deep enough, it's all kind of the same, you know, a thousand well, miles Well, The Office down. is a great example of that. There's a show that started, couldn't be more British, was very specific. We certainly didn't have any grand international plans for it. Uh, it was very parochial. It got adapted in the U.S., it got adapted. There's an Israel version, Israeli version. There's a German version, a French version, a French Canadian version, a South American version, and the Bolivian version. What's that? Bolivian version. Oh, there you are. And so it doesn't. But the fundamentals in each of those versions haven't changed. The dynamics haven't changed. They may be culturally specific, but they're not. But the core of it, the DNA of it, is the same. And I think there's, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but basically it's suggesting offices everywhere fundamentally the same so so with with wrestling um and like with with page in general with this story with this movie that you made fight, fighting with my family um she like you said she's this goth girl she travels four thousand miles everyone else this blonde beauty queen or whatever there's that sense of underdog does she start to find her voice as being kind of the protector of the underdog is that one way for her to be authentic in this in this environment Yes, and and you know along the way she she did try to fit in more. She did dye her hair and give herself the fake tan and try and kind of uh, sort of play into the um, archetype. Um, and th the audience could smell it was phony and didn't respond to it. And neither did WWE. And it, and the more she was true to herself, and the more she, uh, as you say, kind of spoke for the underdog, and actually ultimately ended up, you know, going on stage, going in the ring. Talking about being at, uh, being one of the outsiders and one of the oddballs, one of the freaks, the more the crowd responded to her because, again, it's a rare person who doesn't feel in some way like an outsider or an oddball or a freak. I, it's very odd to me the idea that there's someone who's just sat comfortably the whole thing and just thinking, <laughs> like, like I often think that about Donald Trump because whatever, leaving aside his politics, he's trying to give the illusion. That he's that everything's fine and he's just got it all figured out and it's just he must be just scared of death he every must night. Be. <laughs> he, he, there must be and and I and and that's not just true. I mean, to be fair to him, 
anyone who thinks, whether you're Obama or anyone else, anyone who thinks I could be the leader of the free world, there must be a screw loose somewhere. Because to, are you so sure that you're the one that's going to... You know what I mean? Like that's That takes an extraordinary ego, doesn't it? To think I'm the one who might need to make the decision about the, the nuclear bomb. Like that's a... That's a that's a kind of extraordinary way of thinking. And what is that psychological makeup? Because obviously, I I obviously have a self belief enough to think I could make a movie and that I'm going to be the director and I'm going to be in charge. But so maybe maybe I'm cut. Maybe maybe that's just a similar kind of blind. Craziness. No, but that's. I don't but know. you also pay dues being involved in you know hundreds or thousands of episodes of different yeah maybe you know, shows maybe. and movies <laughs> and so on. So you you know at some point. You're like, okay, I, I know that one plus one equals two and two plus two equals right, four. Right, right, right. And a yeah. beginner might not know that. Yeah, true. Yeah. So, yeah. but, but uh, you know, in the earlier you said, like, when we were talking about the context of dating, everyone says, oh, just be yourself. You don't, don't, that's horrible. You know, don't, don't do that. But uh, the reality is, like with Paige's example or like with the comedian's example, being yourself does get the the highest amount of likability from the audience. If if yourself is honest about your vulnerabilities and weaknesses, right? Maybe you should admit that on a date. This well, is what I'm weak at. <laughs> and of course, again, I I have slightly amplified and exaggerated for comic effect. But um, and certainly, yes. The, the older I've got, I don't play those games anymore. And I, with my girlfriend, we we were very honest. I think with each other fairly early on. Although I think we both admit, you know, we 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 still try to present a good version of ourselves, right? You yeah. know, um, and and then felt the felt enough kind of love and respect coming back from the other person that you felt you could be more honest. So it, it was, but you st you know, you still test you out. You still those test the waters because you because you're you're you've got to protect yourself, right? You don't want to just lay all your vulnerabilities out there and for fear of being judged or um, whatever else, or laughed at. So now, one thing we were talking about was how this movie is one of the one of the aspects of it that is so interesting is that it fits perfectly the arc of the hero. Much like Luke Skywalker in Star Wars is Paige in Fighting With My Family. Right, like right. almost every beat of Star Wars occurs in this movie as well. And... Obviously, I don't think that was intentional because this is based on the documentary. This is really but happened. Also, I'm not. I, I I've heard of the arc of the hero, but I wouldn't say. I if you ask me to confidently spell it out now, I I I think I'd have a sense of it. Right, the idea is that they're sort of called to action. They refuse. They then accept. Is that sort of the idea? Yeah. Then there's a mentor. Then they right. meet more. They have meet more and more friends along the way who help them, but they also have bigger and bigger problems until the final problem, the championship. Blowing up the Death Star, right? But then they have they to do that on home. their own, right? Yeah, they're sort of. They're, they they have the they they're supported by their friends in spirit, but they are ultimately yeah. alone to kind of complete the task. Yeah, and then they come back to share their new not. They're they're a change. They come back a changed person. Right, 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 right. So, yes, but that's yes. interesting that you don't think about it. But like, let's take someone like George Lucas who wrote Star Wars. That's all he thought about. Oh, it was. Yeah, like right. he basically had it like right in front of him and yes. wrote out Star Wars that way. Yes, yes, so, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess I kind of, I have a, I suppose I have a sort of sense of it and a, an innate sense of it, but um, I I wasn't sort of, I wasn't thinking of it as consciously as that. I mean, I was thinking of, you know, I wanted you to have, the, the to be a satisfying shape to the film, and I understood I had to deliver certain things along the way. Uh, so obviously there was a, there was some mechanics involved in making the film. It wasn't, didn't just all spew from the pen so effortlessly, but um 
Yeah, I don't. I don't remember thinking of it quite as. I think maybe just it's such a. It's such a. It, it, it is the right way to tell that kind of story, and that you just end up falling into those slots yeah, naturally. I, you know. I I think where we see, um, you most in the directing in the script is when there's disparities between characters in a scene, like towards the beginning where uh, Zach's uh, fiancés or girlfriends' parents are meeting with the parents, you know, the the wrestling parents, and they're just completely worlds apart right. in that interaction. And, they, and they're committed to being worlds apart. They're not right. going to try to understand each other. And, or not. they don't even know that they're not worlds apart. Right, right. And uh, uh, they're the worlds apart. I think that's, we see that in a lot of your stuff all the time. Well, that was, again, born of a story that the, the, the real wrestling family are these real rough-and-tumble, you know, blue-collar people. Uh, the dad is this big guy. He's been in and out of jail, heavy tattoos, mohawk. The mother's kind of, you know, this sort of shock of red hair, and the kids yeah. are, you know, and they're a family of wrestlers, and they're, you know, on the surface quite intimidating. And they told me that when they met their son's um, future in-laws, uh, they were a much squarer, straighter normal, as it were, in inverted commas, middle-class English couple. But they weren't trying to shock them. They, they weren't trying to shock them. them by... They just, in retrospect, they realized that, that, that that's sort of how, how it had played out. And they told me that story. And I thought, well, that's gold dust because that's how I perceived them when I first saw them in the documentary, you know. Although I'm from a working-class family, they still seemed kind of slightly, whoa, kind of intimidating. And they're quite a... Like I say, they just even visually they're quite striking. But 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 I was completely won over and charmed by them when I went to meet them. I absolutely adored them. I loved them. You know, but going back to let's say even like extras or hello ladies, there's always moments where there's a disparity between what the main character thinks is happening in the situation and what let what somebody else thinks is happening in the situation, and they don't know how to communicate that. And right. that's the humor. Is that because those the scene continues while they both are kind of going on their own path? Because I guess to me, I just think that is what comedy is. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's just no, that's, that, that's kind of what funny. my comedy is. I don't know. Yeah, you might be right. I, uh, uh, I just yes, for just something very funny to me about that. That like we keep coming back to that gap between yeah how you think the situation's going uh, and how it really is. Uh, and I the think maybe it's that knowledge. I did sort of well exactly because it's interesting because again I go back to that point. It's like the Trump point, right? You'll meet people in life who appear not to be nervous people or people of self who are self-reflective. And they walk into a room and they act a certain way. They kind of declare themselves, this is who I am. And everyone around them finds them unbearable. They hate them. Now, that person has no idea that that's what people think. And they go about their life. And if people, and on occasion, presumably someone goes, you're a dick. And they must think, well, this guy's an outlier, right? He's like he's the one person who thinks I'm a dick. Fuck him. When in actual fact, everyone thinks he's a dick. They just he's they're just not saying it out of politeness, or he's not picking up on the signals. And I often look at those people, and I'm like, wow, like that's extraordinary to me that you can be so sort of so delusional, so convinced of your own sort of brilliance that you have no idea that people think every joke you make is lame. Every comment you say is loud and boorish and ill-informed. You know, just I'm I'm dazzled by those sort of people because I'd love to just live inside their head for a second. And and some of them, presumably, it's a front, and they are kind of cowering people who are trying to put on an act. And some of them are just amazingly deluded and somehow get through life never being enlightened as to how people really think about them. 
And so, so now that you've totally psychoanalyzed me completely. Is that who you are? No. no. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe I hope not. Uh, Do you know who I always think would be that person if you met them in real life? James Bond. <laughs> James Bond's one of those guys. You know, he, he goes around making these quips and these jokes. You know, uh, he's driving along and, um, you know, he... Or he um, some guys are assassins are killing, trying to kill him, and then he rams one off the, the road, and then they they drive their motorbike through a, 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 a truck carrying mattresses, and they plummet to their death over the cliff, and then all these and he feathers flying, and then he says, uh, "All those feathers," and he still couldn't fly, and <laughs> just drives on, and the kind of the kind of Russian uh, supermodel secret agent next to him kind of laughs, and you just think, "What are you doing?" You're, you're, you just killed a man, and now you're making a flippant remark, and she's <laughs> laughing because she's got English as a second language, so she just thinks you said something funny because the rhythm sounded right. But you're a fucking maniac. And if you worked in an office with James Bond, and he's like, you're like, oh fuck, it's James Bond. Just don't, just don't mention the barbecue we're having on Wednesday, right? We don't want him coming. Hey, James. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, and it's just uh, this is something about that. You know, because because when I was growing up, the idea of James Bond was such an attractive version of a man. Like it seemed yeah. like he was really together and kind of, and you know, poised. And and actually, I know he's a fictional character, but it's funny that that presentation of masculinity, for so long, was presented as the kind of epitome of sophistication and cool and charm. And he's fucking unbearable. <laughs> that that's funny. That's a bit you could do stand do that up bit, tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well. Stephen Merchant, it's been such a pleasure. I've been a fan of everything you've ever done. I think, like, I've I've watched it all. I've seen I've seen so many shows you've written. So I'm so happy to have talked to you. And this movie uh, looks great. Uh, Fighting with my family coming out February 14th. Dwayne Johnson, small role by you. Other amazing actors and actresses and. What's not what's not to love? I, I what what do you think? Does everybody say to you in advance it's going to be a blockbuster? Like, is this going to kill it at the box office? I, I have to say that the critic response has been great. The audience response of people we've shown it to has been great. I think what's always tricky is just are pe are people put off by wrestling? They think, oh, I'm not a wrestling fan. It's not for me. And I, I honestly, I swear, I promise, on my mother's eyes, I have tried to make a movie that will appeal to the wrestling fan and the non wrestling fan. I have never watched wrestling in my life. This movie is great. So there we go. Enjoy. <laughs> All right, thanks so much. Thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.